Good morning. I'm Ann Schindler, and this is First Coast Connect. Today, how the military is dealing with the problem of stalking and intimate partner violence. Nearly one in three women will be stalked in her lifetime and nearly one in six men. I'm joined now by Naval Station Mayport's Advocacy and Counseling Program Supervisor, Susan Rucker, and Victim Advocate, Olivia Duffy. Welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you. And we want to hear from you as well, especially if you are current or former military. Did you witness or endure domestic violence while serving? Give us a call at 549-2937. Don't forget the 904. And you can email us at firstcoastconnect at wjct.org. You can also reach out via X or or Facebook or Instagram. Um, Olivia Duffy, how big of a problem is stalking for Mayport and other military bases? Um, it's an ongoing problem because there's so many facets to this. It's, it's, it's a, a part of a bigger picture sometimes of domestic violence or intimate partner violence. Um, but what we're seeing because of technology has changed so much um, that we're seeing a lot of behaviors that are more surveillance. Um, we're talking about anywhere from um, air tags in diaper bags. We've had clients that are, you know, kind of going through a divorce. Uh, and divorce happens across um, all, you know, facets of life and everything. It's just uh, part of our culture. Um, but it gets really, really uh, important for people that are going through or leaving a relationship um, to feel comfortable when one person maybe is, is not wanting out of the relationship and it becomes very dangerous for the person that does. Um, as far as, you know, so we're seeing some clients that are being followed, stalked, um, even to the courthouse for court proceedings. Um, like I said, air, air tags, you know, we think of air tags as something that maybe can keep our kids safe. Um, even people put it in their luggage, um, to find luggage. Um, the military, because we move so much, uh, we have household goods that are moving to different locations. People are using air tags to track the location of their household goods, which is a great thing. I mean, they were, they were designed for safety. Um, but then we always have an element that use it, uses it for surveillance on people. That... And just to be 100% clear, those are kind of those devices that you can track, you put yeah. them in an item, and then your phone can track their location. Yes. Um, as you know, we also have a few, I have an Apple, but you know, Apple, you have location services. And I talk to victims all the time when we're doing safety planning. That's the very first thing that I go over with them is to turn off location services on the phone. Um, and unfortunately, because of safety f- features, you know, you can buy a, a vehicle that has OnStar uh, and whoever's on the account can track that vehicle. So we're seeing people that are in the midst of um, separating uh, from intimate partner or have been married, you know, and are seeking a divorce. Um, those partners um, have been able to track um, their soon to be some ex um, with the OnStar on, in the car. I've seen recently, too, it's been very difficult sometimes for people who, uh, you know, their car might be owned by their spouse or their ex. um, And so it's very often hard to get the car companies to disengage that tracking service. But uh, Susan Rucker, January was the 20th annual Stalking Awareness Month. Uh, This is a yearly call to action to recognize and respond to the crime of stalking, but it's not just for the military. So why does Mayport participate? So we participate in uh, several months that are um, just important for awareness. So October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month. January is Stalking. February coming up is going to be Teen Dating Violence Month. And it's just to try and keep the importance of the subject um, in people's minds um, so that they're aware of the problems and don't um, don't lose lose sight of the fact that even though everything may look normal and look look good, there can be... Um, something going on under the surface that, that can be very dangerous. And what does stalking awareness look like on base? What messaging do you do? How do you communicate it? How? What kind of outreach do you do? So um, things like this. Yes. <laughs> um, um, we we have a, a lot of flyers that we put up. Um, we just want to maybe get the message out that because with stalking, um, it's almost impossible to prosecute the offender. You really have to have evidence. Um, you have to have, uh, you know, a pattern of behavior that's more or 
two or more incidents of uh, following surveillance, unwanted phone calls. Um, you know, some people tell me that their phone, you know, they can't, they have to silence their phone because their phone is just blowing up, um, you know, multiple calls um, and text messages. People use social media um, to, um, you know, um, say bad things about the person and intimidate them maybe to get back together. Um, we've even seen some re- what we call revenge porn where maybe you people have taken some intimate photographs and they use those in court against the person or they'll even intimidate them saying they're going to release them to their Navy command, um, which they feel like can be devastating to their military career. Uh, we've got a call, Mark, on the west side. Good morning, Mark. Welcome to First Coast Connect. Good morning. It's an interesting topic. You know, we forget that uh, probably most of the people on the base these days are 18, 19, 20. I mean, it's almost like high school to them. But I was kind of curious, having been an officer in the Navy, if uh, and, and I'm sure a, a large majority of the people that would complain about this are complaining about somebody that works in their same space or their same division or on their same plane or whatever it is. What happens then? Do you Do you transfer the person that's complaining out or do the you transfer the uh, the uh, yeah the, the accused out or do you not do that at all i mean it's kind of difficult just to transfer somebody you know with a very specific job to you know across the country or something so i was kind of curious good question mark uh um, we have a what we call a safety move protocol when one person is in danger. A lot of time it coincides with dom- acts of domestic violence when there's been incidents of domestic violence. But we also have a very extensive sexual assault um, sapper um, department within our office um, that deals with sexual assault within the military. So if they're in the same um, shop, so to speak, uh, whether it's on, you know, an aircraft or on the ship, then they go through a process of maybe um, transferring one person to another duty station. Just because you can imagine being in the same space, um, being with uh, the alleged offender. And sometimes I work very hard with clients to get an injunction for protection. So usually that's the first line of defense. We get what we call military protection order, and that's issued through the command. Um, But I also um, have a lot of my clients go out in town and work through the court system to get an injunction for protection. And that way um, that person is not allowed within 500 feet. Of the of the victim. What is the jurisdictional issue there? Like, when is it? You know, the state attorney's office. When is it the military police um, or a court martial type proceeding? Um, on Naval Station Mayport, we have dual jur- jurisdiction. Of course, the only caveat to that is on the pier side, and that's federal property, um, which we'd have to get federal marshals. Um, but we do. Um, we have a uh, what we call a JAG office, a uh, a legal office that they can go to to be served. And then if they're going to be served an injunction or even um, divorce uh, papers, then they go to that office. Um, They're called there and then they're served papers. Um, But we have a a very, we have a great, wonderful security department on base. They just don't have the power to, you know, like take someone to be be incarcerated. So as soon as there's an incident of domestic violence on Naval Station Mayport, and we have two housing areas um, they do respond to JSO comes and uh, responds along with their base security. Susan, what are the special challenges or circumstances when it comes to people who are serving in the military? I'm thinking about unique stressors on relationships, um, long deployments, uh, people who are you know, stationed far from their families and maybe without the support network that they would have? So, yeah, you're actually naming some of them. So um, unique to the military absolutely is deployments, is underways. So even if we're not in a wartime, even if we're not going out into combat, families are still separated because the ships go out. Um, they're underway, they're doing testing, their workups, they're workups, um, that sort of thing. So there's a lot of separation. There's a lot of, you know, I'm a single parent family, now I'm a dual parent family, now I'm a single parent family. So a lot of adjusting back and forth between that. Um, and then there's the, you know, the moving. Um, so changing duty stations every so many years, um, which uh, in some ways creates a really close community. Most military um, facilities that I've been on, the families, they connect, they, you know, they, they support each other and so forth, but it also keeps you, um, more distant from the friends and family that you maybe grew up with that, you know, that support network. Um, so then the other thing that is, 
somewhat unique to the military is that the age of marriage um, tends to be lower than the regular civilian population. Um, so we've got younger um, people getting married and younger people having children. Uh, so just um, uh, uh, maybe a maturity factor or less less life experience, less, less um, relationship experience. It's kind um, of like our caller Mark was saying, a lot of people on base are, you know, teenagers still, right? And um, very often in relationships um, that may be, you know, marital stressors that they're experiencing. Um, I mean, traditionally, you know, the military has had one of the highest rates of divorce of any career field, you know, in part because of those stressors. Mm -hmm. And I know that Duval County for a number of years led the state in an exceedingly high divorce rate, something that was often attributed to the the presence of the military here. Um, So those stressors, I mean, before they escalate to something along the lines of stalking and domestic violence, what services are in place for service members who are just kind of dealing with those circumstances? So we actually have a counseling component that is separate from domestic violence. So if you are um, feeling stress, whether you're married and it's marital stress, whether you're single and it's just, I'm not sure this is the right career for me or I'm, you know, whatever's going on, um, you can certainly come in uh, and and seek counseling services um, that we offer. This isn't just us. This is uh, NAS Jacks and Kings Bay and pretty much every military installation has, you know, some kind of counseling services available. Um, and then um, Fleet and Family Support Center, which is, <coughs> excuse me, where Olivia and I work, um, has a lot of other supports for military families um, as well. We're talking about the issue of stalking and uh, intimate partner violence uh, on the military bases and involving people who work for the military. Um, we invite you to call at 549-2937. You can also email us at First Coast Connect at wjct.org, or you can reach out on X or Instagram or Facebook. Um, Olivia Duffy, you are a victim's advocate. What kind of stories have you dealt with? What kind of circumstances do you, is there a typical situation? Um, a lot of times, um, you know, like out in the regular community, um, not just the military community, um, we do see because of the stress, some alcohol abuse. Um, and like, again, we're talking about the younger, um, you know, the lower enlisted, um, not always, but, you know, alcohol as a stressor reliever, um, even though we do have a great um we have a stress management class. We have an anger management class that we have um, on online. So it's, that's great that we have that. Um, but, you know, people do turn to other negative ways to cope with stress. And we're, we're seeing some alcohol. And one of the biggest things is financial. Uh, we're seeing a huge financial burden on the military. Um, I have gotten food, a lot of food insecurities uh, with our military families. You know, we have... Um, lower pay, um, maybe four and five children. Um, and there's just not enough money to go around sometimes because of the moving all the time. Cause I was a Navy wife for 20 years. Um, I did re and start my career several times to get my degree. So it, it's really a burden on the spouses. Um, some of them don't work. Some of them, um, have left high school to marry, um, maybe their high school sweetheart. And now they're in the military, uh, and they, they're not employed. Um, we have a, a EFMP program, Exceptional Family Member um, Program for uh, families that have um, children with special needs that are meet on, maybe on the spectrum or somehow. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes the since the military member's gone so much, um, it, it's on the spouse to stay home and care for those children um, because the military, you're not with family. So where do you turn to uh, for daycare, for watching a child with special needs? So that gets to be a really big problem, uh, especially financially when there's only one breadwinner. And that's also true of domestic violence. We see a lot of domestic violence cases um, uh, where the families kind of, I would say for a better word, just kind of stuck together. We have families that are going through a divorce, but they don't have the money to move out to two different residents. So they're trying to maintain a household um, and be single but married in the same household. Um, and that's almost like a recipe for disaster. Wow. I would bet. Um, we got a message. Lisa on Facebook is asking, what legal protection is there for phone stalking when the abuser is actively intimidating through phone contact? Um, that's hard because, um, 
you know, when you're stalking, uh, you have to have the evidence to prosecute what I talked to about before. You know, there has to be an alleged offender. Um, there has to be some means to prove that's the person you think it is. And a lot of times people will have what we call burner phones where they constantly call that person unknown number. You know, if you go to your carrier and you take in your phone and you say, you know, I'm getting multiple calls, um, you have to really narrow that down to a person to be able to prosecute. And that's very, that can be very difficult. We also have an email from Mark. It's kind of a long email, but basically he says he was involved in a contentious divorce and that his wife's uh, attorney used domestic violence, the system as a tool against him. Um, and that became itself uh, an, an issue. He says there are three sides to every story, his side, her side, and the truth. And I guess it can be difficult to, to winnow through some of those claims. Absolutely. And absolutely. how do you manage that? Best we can. I mean, absolutely. We're trying not to, not to make anything worse. We're trying to make things better for people. So um, in terms of the domestic violence uh, services that we offer, we have the victim advocate services, and we also have case managers who, if, you know, if we have a domestic violence incident that we're looking into, they're going to talk to people on both sides um, to try and get a good picture. And we try and make everything that we do is treatment-based. It's not about punishment. It's not really about legal or divorce. Um, it's just about trying to help protect safety and make sure that any kind of unhealthy relationship patterns get better. So we're making treatment recommendations. However, what we do sometimes gets used. It's not supposed to be, but sometimes, you know, people will try and use it against each other, you know, when they're dealing with court, either for injunction or for um, divorce or for child custody, all of that stuff. So, you know, it's just um, the, the, we're doing the best we can to help, to help people and people are in a rough situation. Um, so and so the military, like um, perhaps, you know, uh, law enforcement, if you are, you know, served an injunction or if you have a domestic violence um, issue in your relationship, that can really derail your career. Um, is there are there pressures that make it difficult for people to report because of that, knowing that, you know, something might prevent somebody from moving forward or getting advanced? Um, so some of that is um, what what people believe, what people out in the military community believe is if I have a case with Fleet and Family for domestic violence specifically, it would be called a FAP case, Family Advocacy Program. Um, but if I have one of those, then it's going to mess up my career. It's going to mess up my spouse's career. So I don't want to report. I don't want to talk about what's going on. Um, the reality is, um, is less likely. It's less likely to do that. There is a possibility if it's, say, child sexual abuse that it could mess up your career. Um, but uh, for the most part, we take cases at a very low level um, because we know we have a very young population that maybe doesn't have the relationship skills and we're trying to get in ahead of problems becoming really entrenched so that we can get some treatment in and, and help them. So I've definitely had people that I've met years later, you know, out on ships who have been like, oh, do you remember me? I was in your men's group, you know, and I'm still married to the same person and I'm a chief now. I've, you know, I've made, I've gotten promoted. So um, what we're trying to do really is get in kind of early ahead of things and, and help stabilize stuff. And so when um, you were kind of referencing this, Olivia, but, you know, there is a difficult time in relationships that are ending. And really one of the most dangerous points is when someone's trying to break things off. Yes. Do you talk to people about how to prepare for that time? Are there ways to really make that safer? It just seems like such a volatile circumstance. Yes, we uh, we have extensive safety plans that we go over um, with with all all victims, um, but in particular, just leaving their relationship, um, it, it's it just goes to a whole new level. Um, we had a murder of a chief on base uh, about five years ago, and she had just left at the relationship, um, and it just it proved to, to be fatal for her. So, you know, the, I use that as a lesson to kind of go over everything that could possibly uh, be entrenched in leaving a relationship. Because when you think about uh, ex-husband, ex-wife, um, they've lived in your home. So we're talking about, again, surveillance, you know, um, access to the home. Um, changing passwords, 
um, changing codes to garage door openers, changing everything because, you know, whoever's on the account usually has access to the phones. Whoever pays for the phone has the phone, can usually see numbers that you've called. Um, surveillance, I mean, I have a ADT account. So if when you have those codes and you can see inside someone's home, you know, that's a complete invasion and it's very, very dangerous. Um, just another thing to go on what Susan was talking about. We've, um, years ago, we decided to because of the uh, possibility that people are threatened to come talk to us, that their husbands or spouse are going to lose their career, we have what we call re uh, restricted reporting. So someone can come into our office and make a restricted report, which means that's just between myself, um, the victim, medical, and a case manager. Um, we take restricted reports. We don't have too many, um, but it gives them an uh, a way to voice what's happening and then we don't contact if it's that's very low level you know something that they just need counseling for does it kind of just, get it on the record so that if there's a subsequent incident yeah, it gets it on the record and then at any time they can come in and unrestrict the report which then we can turn that around to a unrestricted which means we can contact the command we can contact law enforcement but it kind of gives the victim control over the situation because then they can decide you know what they want to report and if they want that to be unrestricted. So it gives them more freedom um, to feel more comfortable um, because it is, you know, I was a Navy wife for 20 years. It is scary walking into us because you don't want your spouse's career to end. You just want help. You know, you may want the situation to get better. You may want the spouse to get help, um, but you definitely don't want to ruin his career um, because that's the, the breadwinner. Usually it's the breadwinner. So then you're actually doing like I call catch 22 where if you get in trouble, then that's, you know, going to mess up the finances for the family. And I don't know if you were specifically referencing the case of Navy Chief Petty Officer Andrea Washington. She was murdered, I think, in 2018 yes. by her ex-fiance. Yes. Um, and, you know, she was in the military, but he was a civilian. And I guess that goes to speak to the fact that you're dealing not just with the population on base, you're dealing with people that maybe coming and going from their lives. Um, Susan, you said earlier that there is kind of a, a means for people who aren't in the military to access some of the benefits that you offer. So um, if you are not in the military, but you're dating somebody in the military, so you're not married to them, but you're in a dating relationship with them, um, and there is domestic violence or something going on, stalking going on, so forth, um, you do have access to... Um, our two victim advocates, and um, they will get you connected to services in the community. Um, and we will possibly open a case um, and, and, and look into what's going on, which means that the service member can also get some help um, if you're making a report. Uh, so also, if you are um, dating somebody in the military, generally we don't do couples counseling um, except for married people, but if we do do uh, premarital counseling. So um, sometimes there's a way to access counseling services uh, through the military. And um, Olivia, what is the best way for people to reach out if they are in need of help, um, if they're being stalked or if they know someone who is? Um, they can reach out. We're on Naval Station Mayport, but there's at Kings Bay, um, NAS Jacks. Um, they have the Fleet and Family Support Center. It, we're actually on Massey Avenue in Building 1. Um, our best contact info number is 904-270-6600 um, to reach out by phone. And, is and we're that, also on Facebook. And I think you described you've got a partnership with Hubbard House. Yes, um, because we don't have any um, shelter services for victims on base. Um, we work with Hubbard House. It's the local uh, battered um, shelter here in Duval County. So um, I want to just bring up one of the worst cases, I think, in recent memory was uh, Rush Wilson. Um, this was in 2015, but he was a sailor who killed his two twin children, the infants, his girlfriend, her mother, and then himself. Um, and so it was a really you know, horrible, violent situation. He'd been involved in a number of prior domestic incidents, some that had been reported to police, some that had been reported to the Navy. <clears throat> what is the sense, I mean, are there lessons learned from a situation like that? I know that there was some criticism at the time that maybe red flags were raised and ignored. So anytime there is a fatality 
the Navy is absolutely looking into that and looking into what happened and looking into all parts of that. And I know because um, there was there was a group that came down and presented on that particular case that you're talking about that they were looking into um, not just what happened through fleet and family, but what happened through medical, what happened through his career in terms of his performance evaluations, everything. So that kind of um, event gets looked at very closely um, to, just to find out, hey, what happened? What did we miss? What can we do in the future to, to you know, try and make things better um, so that this sort of thing doesn't happen again? And is the military notified when something happens in the civilian world, for instance, if it happens off base and uh, perhaps off base housing, but if there's a, an a allegation of domestic violence, are, are you notified? Not necessarily. So because there's a lot of protection for victims, we don't have access to, say, police reports um, like JSO police reports. If something happens on base, um, we usually are notified by base security so forth. Um, so the way we would get notified about something off base could be the victim contacts us because of events like this where they hear, they know that they've got this access to the services or because um, the sailor is the victim and contacts us or because either one of them reports to command um, what's, you know, what's going on and the command lets us know. So there are ways that we find out, but I don't know that we find out about everything that happens off base. And Olivia, you encourage people to notify if something happens? Uh, we do because there is a, there's a program. Um, it's called transitional compensation, um, and it's a it's a program where if a service member is being um, discharged from the Navy because of um, domestic violence or intimate partner related incidents or child sexual abuse, um, then the family can get a stipend for up to thirty six months. Um, monies that will be needed to help the family make a transition. So it's really important that if people are in an um, intimate partner um, situation, they do let us know because we do, everything is free. So we have counseling, we have the PFM, the personal financial management, we have the new parent support uh, for um, people that are pregnant and going to have a baby. Because it's a difficult time. You know, you're away from family, you're pregnant, you're having a baby. So we have those programs in place. So we just want to encourage everyone to come and contact us. Well, uh, Olivia, Olivia Duffy and Susan Rucker, thanks so much for coming in today to talk about this. Thank you. Thank you. And coming up in just a minute, nearly five decades later, Jacksonville's most contaminated property finally gets cleaned up, maybe. Welcome back. It's been more than 45 years since Jacksonville's most polluted industrial site closed down, but major cleanup has yet to begin. That could change this spring, and over the next two days, local residents will have an opportunity to weigh in. I'm joined now by St. John's Riverkeeper Lisa Reinemann, whose organization has long been involved in monitoring cleanup plans at this former pesticide plant and other places. Uh, Lisa, thanks so much for being here. Good morning. Happy to be here. Happy to have you, and of course, our condolences for your father-in-law, uh, Jim just a legend in local circles. He left a large wake of good advice as well as wonderful memories, but thank you. Yeah, well, we're glad to glad to have you. Um, and we'd like to remind our listeners uh, about the Kermagee Superfund site. So where is it? What is it? Why should we care? Sure. So the Kermagee um, Chemical Corporation cleanup site is on the west bank of the St. Johns River, just north of the um, uh, of the of the football stadium and all that area, and just east of East Jacksonville. Um, it's a wooded, it looks like a wooded site right now because it's been dormant for a while, but unfortunately it's very contaminated based on more than a hundred or nearly a hundred years of manufacturing fertilizers, herbicides, and other chemical compounds. Okay. And so it is uh, among the most contaminated sites in the country. It's been designated a super fun site. It's yes. probably 
known to be the most contaminated in this area. So uh, there was an article in 2016, the Times Union said, you know, it's coming. It's been a long time coming, but it, now it's happening. That was, you know, almost 10 years ago. What takes so long? Well, it start, in 2011, the investigation started. So really determining the extent of the, the contamination. And you have to realize it's not just the soil, it's the groundwater, it's the surrounding um, surface water in Deep Creek in the St. Johns River, as well as the sedimentation. And so none of that's easy to clean up, nor is it cost effective. It's very expensive. And so after years of study and investigation, they do have a plan for cleanup. Um, it's not 100% perfect. We would like to see all the contamination leave the site, but they are going to contain it on the site and get it out of harm's way and away from human contact. And so this site itself is very dirty, but really the history of how it was handled by the company, Kermagee, was also kind of rather dirty. I mean, they they created a shell company. They transferred all of the liability and the pollution liability to this shell company, and then they didn't have money to pay for cleanup. So they were actually prosecuted by the Department of Justice. How unusual is that kind of a circumstance? Um, sadly, it's not that unusual. You know, they're always passing the buck and trying to figure out, you know, kick the can down the road. And this is just an extreme example of that. And this cleanup only deals with a portion of the problem. There's a phase two in Deep Creek that they're just starting to investigate. So there's more to be done. And there's other Super Sun Fun sites out there that need to be addressed. In recent years, we've had a number of major storms that have impacted this property and other Superfund sites, particularly Irma, which flooded it out. Yes. How concerned should the you know thousands of residents that live around that area be? Um, they should be very concerned because whenever you have floodwaters, and of course the St. John's River is being impacted by sea level rise and more frequent storms, that contamination can run off into the storm drains and go into neighborhoods and also the St. John's River. So you don't have to live adjacent to the site to be concerned. If you're concerned about the health of the St. John's River, this should be something important to you as well. And so there are opportunities to get involved today. There's actually two virtual meetings, one's at 1230 yes. today, one's at 530 today. Um, and we're going to have information on the WJCT website um, about how you can link to those. And then there's also two in-person meetings tomorrow at noon and at 430. That's going to be at Silky's Chicken and Champagne Bar. You can't go wrong with that on Walnut Street. <laughs> um, so why should people get involved? Sure. So, I mean, if you're interested in understanding the history, the impact, but more importantly for these workshops, if you want to know how they're going to maintain, contain the contamination during the cleanup, because they're going to have to disturb the contamination. They're going to have to do some dredging along the site and the river and Deep Creek. And so it's important if you're concerned about the next two years while this cleanup is underway, how it may impact the health of your community if you live in East Jacksonville or if you are concerned about the St. John's River, this is a time you can come and learn about that and um, understand what the two-year process is going to look like and how are they going to protect our river? How are they going to protect our community? And it's crazy. I mean, as you, this site hasn't been used since 1978, essentially, and it looks like a very green parcel. Uh, going forward, what might it be used for? Um, it looks like it will most likely be used for ex an expansion of the Talleyrand port. They are going to have to put a protective cap. So all of those trees you see out there today, unfortunately, we will lose, lose those trees. They'll contain, contain the soil, put the cap. And so it would be ideal for potential expanded port activities, which I believe are the part of the plans of the conversation anyway. It's kind of a shame. It really is the only green spot I there because it's all port and all concrete <laughs> right. as it is. Um, well, uh, Lisa Reinemann, St. John's Riverkeeper, thank you so much for bringing us up to date on this issue and reminding people why they should get involved. Absolutely. Thank you for having me today. Of course. And up next, we talk to Duval County's Teacher of the Year about his journey from one of the state's poorest communities to the pinnacle of educational excellence. Welcome back. 
Almost 200 educators across Duval County competed for the coveted Teacher of the Year title this year with just two years of experience. This year's winner hails from Terry Parker High School and joins us now. Terry Parker biology teacher Gustavo Guzman, welcome to the program. Thank you, Anne. Thank you for having me here. It's a delight to have you here. So first off, congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. How did you learn that you'd won? Um, at the Eddie's Award, uh, the third, third annual Eddie's Award, uh, they announced it. So it was five uh, finalists left. And yeah, they had us on stage and announced the winner. And it was exciting, nerve-wracking. So it was fun. What does it mean to you to be chosen as Teacher of the Year? Oh, it means a lot. Like I, Like you said, two years of experience, I never, like, even had a thought that that would happen and like coming up after high school like I remember telling my best friend graduating high school I would never be a teacher like I see what teachers go through the sacrifices the challenges my coaches my mentors I'm like I would never be a teacher and then I graduated college and I remember like reflecting on like how did I get to where I'm at and it was because of teachers and educators and I was like I want to do you know I want to be a pivotal person in someone else's life and help get them up the ranks and in, in education. So, you know, I'm a first-generation college graduate, and I just want to give back to the students, you know, what was provided for me. And so tell us a little bit about your history. We did a show yesterday, actually, on, like, cane country down south Lake Okeechobee and some of the health concerns of, you know, burning sugar cane. You're from right around there, Belle Glade. Um, it's an agricultural community. It's a fairly poor community. Talk a little bit about uh, your experiences there and kind of what your education was like. So, yeah, so coming in from, I'm from Belgrade, Florida. I love saying that. I'm from Belgrade, Florida. Um, it's, it's a big agricultural community. It is. Um, my parents, they were laborers in agriculture. They packed corn, cut cane, um, harvested cane, and all these different things. And, you know, it's, it's not easy, you know, getting out of Muck City is what we call it. Because a lot of times the students that get out of Muck City or Belgrade is either through sports, heavily through sports, um, sports scholarships to college, and academics as well. But if you don't do either of those, you're usually still working in the agricultural um, opportunities, which is not bad, but you know, it is labor, like strenuous labor. Um, but you know, like for me, like coming up in that, like I just knew that that was not for me. Like my mom did immigrate to the United States. My mom and dad immigrated to the United States from Mexico. And I always thought of like the sacrifice they made for me to have this opportunity and I, everything I pursued um, in my life, I just made sure to put my best self for, uh, forth and just strive to achieve. And so you kind of alluded to some educators that were important in your own development. Um, what in particular, any teachers that stand out, any moments that stand out to you? Oh, there was, you know, like my coaches, my teachers, like you teachers, like, I doubted my abilities as a scholar. Like, you know, I wasn't in honors classes or all that. And, like, one of my teachers, Mr. Maxwell, he was like, hey, you you should be in IB, like the International Baccalaureate Program. Like, you're doing really great. You should be in IB. I want you in IB. And I was hesitant. I'm like, no, like, I'm good. I don't I don't think that's for me. I, I don't want to be in IB. And so funny thing is the IB coordinator was actually my kindergartner teacher. And after kindergarten, I never seen her again until I got to high school. And she helped get me into IB. And when I got in IB, I was like, this isn't so bad. I can do this. And I thrived. And Mr. Maxwell believing in me, like, is what helped push me through the finish line. And I also had coaches. Like, I'm an athlete. And I had Coach Ford. Like, I didn't think I was going to go to college. I was like, hey, you know, there's personal challenges with my family. I don't think I can go to college with financial support. And I won't be able to afford it. And my parents won't be able to afford it. And Coach Ford was like, hey, like, we can find a way. And they found a way to get me a, a scholarship to Arrow Waters uh, College here in Jacksonville, and I've been here since. Um, you noted that there are a lot of uh, athletes that come out. I think that uh, Bell Glade, or Glades High School, Glade Central, has uh, more NFL. Glade Central, yeah. yeah. But I went to so I went to the neighboring school at Pahokee, which we're we're side by side, ten minutes apart. But I went to Pahokee High School. So, yeah, we do have Aquan Bowden uh, went there. And That's he the actually, Blue Devils, right? Blue Devils, yeah. yeah. So uh, he went there, and he actually built the stadium uh, in Pahokee. So we have a nice stadium, and the, where a lot of my practice time went. Um, you're teaching now at Terry Parker. Talk about the population there. What are some of the challenges, and how do you reach students? So some of the challenges is definitely, you know, we have very diverse students, and with diverse, I mean, like, different languages, you know, um, 
uh, other challenges such as like we don't know or we do know, but our, like where our students come from in regards to like how home life, uh, financial home life, like how how are they? Um, you know, some of some of our students have to work. You know, they have to take care of siblings after school. Uh, so there's a lot of things that go into our students' life that you know creates these challenges. But you know, being an educator, we have to find a way to reach our students where they are um, regularly and help build them up from there and help them get the material because it's not easy, you know, having a job, doing sports, doing all these things, and still trying to learn eight different topics and trying to do well in school and to do testing and everything. So it's just trying to build um, our students up where they are from where they are. Then how do you do that? So me personally, I know for me, like growing up, I mom was never present at my award ceremonies and uh, competitions. So it's not her fault. You know, she had to provide and, you know, we had to have food and somewhere to live. So mom and dad always worked. Um, but they, she was never there. And like I felt that like I felt that like I would look in the stands. Mom isn't there. I would look in the award ceremony. Mom wasn't there. And like for me, for my students, it's like. I try to be there. Get me your, your schedule, you know, get me whatever events you got coming up. I want to at least make one of them and be there to cheer you on and support you. So that's where I do it. Like, I try to be there for my students. I try to be present because same here, like their parents working at a Title I school, parents have to work. Parents have to provide for their kids. They're not, you know, always present, you know. So for me, it's like I want to be present. Like I ask my kids, like once I'm doing my lesson, if I got a couple minutes of spare, I check in with all of my students like, hey, How's this sport going? How's this activity going? How's this thing? What all are you involved in to, like, keep you active, keep you engaged? Um, And just me and my students there, I also get involved with programs such as 5,000 Role Models of Excellence. Uh, It's a male mentor group, and we work with our students, you know, to introduce them to leaders in the community and opportunities for life after high school. You know, not just college, but other, you know, different trades and different opportunities for life after high school. And I also get involved with, like, Marathon High. We're actually going to do the Donna Half Marathon. Um, so we build up the students to run a half marathon from way back in September up to now. So it's like I try to be active wherever I can be. What's Marathon High? Uh, it's um one of our programs here in Duval where like we work with students, or not work with students, but we, we get students engaged in an activity where it's not competitive. It is running because Adana, you know, the Donna Half Marathon is 13.1 miles, and I'm a runner, and that's that's a beast. But we build up our students with time um, over the months and we run on Tuesdays and Thursdays and Saturdays and we get coaches, you know, people in the, uh, people from the school, like teachers um, to run with the students and stay active and just, you know, promote healthy living. And there's also scholarship opportunities for our students. It's kind of interesting to hear you say that, you know, one of your approaches to reaching your students is all of this activity outside the classroom. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, so in the classroom, because my life is kind of ironic because I'm a biology teacher and biology was one of my toughest subjects. Like I, I don't want to say I dislike biology with a passion, but it was very challenging. But now here I am teaching biology and I love it because it's like, whoa. So it's just being able to try to connect these things like from biology for my students and put into perspective with things they're involved in. So they can kind of associate the material um, with what they're learning. So. Your folks uh, pretty proud of this latest award of yours? They are. They are because, you know, like, I I never saw it coming. But, like, one of my biggest goals was always to strive to make my parents proud. I was, so they are. Well, Gustavo Guzman, thank you so much, and congratulations on being Teacher of the Year. Thank you very much. And stick around. In just a minute, we hear from the star of Town, the devil himself. Congaree Pen, dedicated to agriculture and culinary endeavors, offering field-to-fork dining and outdoor experiences on over 300 acres. Sip, dine, explore. Information at congareeandpen.com. 
The Jacksonville Music Experience presents Black Opry Review live on the WJCT soundstage on Thursday, February 15th. The Nashville-based collective is a celebration of the diversity and versatility of country music. Tickets and more information at jacksmusic.org events. I'm Deepa Fernandez. When Tennessee mom Allie Phillips found out her pregnancy wasn't viable, she was told to go out of state for an abortion. Now she's running for office to change the laws. In simple terms, giving choice back to parents when diagnosed with fetal anomalies. It should be up to the parents what happens next. Next time, here and now. Today at 2 on WJCT News 89.9. On the next Fresh Air, Emma Stone. She's nominated for an Oscar for her starring role in Poor Things, which is also nominated for Best Picture and Best Director. Her co-star Mark Ruffalo is also nominated. Stone won an Oscar for her performance in La La Land and was nominated for Birdman and The Favorite. Join us. Today at noon on WJCT News 89.9. Kratom is a tropical tree. Its leaves, in their concentrated form, have opioid-like effects. It's legal, but not regulated. Now new reporting is asking serious questions about those who've died after an overdose. The Tampa Bay Times investigation into Kratom, next time on 1A. Today, starting at 10 on WJCT News 89.9. Welcome back. The Tony Award-winning musical Town opens in Jacksonville next week, and I'm pleased to welcome the actor who, who portrays the titular Hades, Matthew Patrick Quinn. Thanks so much for speaking to us. Thank you for having me. My pleasure. So I referenced you as the devil, but it's probably more accurate to say Hades is the god of the underworld. So what prepares you for a role like this? I'm so glad that you said that because I'm sitting here listening to you introduce it, and I'm like, oh, gosh, here we go again. <laughs> it, it, it's, it, obviously, it's like, you know, from, from an educated standpoint, you can, like, you know, kind of pick it apart. But at the end of the day, I think most people you know, associate Hades with, like, the Christian mythological devil. And it's, it's, it's fine for, like, a storytelling perspective. He is definitely the leader of the underworld. Um, you know, preparing myself for this role, obviously, it, it took some of that that um, delving into the literature and trying to research as much as I could on on the character uh, himself and and what was written about him. Um, and then obviously, you go beyond that with you know the director Rachel Chavkin, and you know discussing you know this specific iteration of this story and coming up with uh, a portrayal that matches with the, the concept that they've created to, to tell this myth in this new uh, sort of modernized way. And so Town kind of marries a couple of Greek myths together. Can you tell us, like, refresh us on the myths themselves, who's involved, and um, how this plot unfolds? Sure. So um, it's, a, it's a reimagining of two famous uh, Greek love stories. Um, Orpheus and Eurydice are our two younger lovers. Uh, you see them meet for the first time on stage and fall in love. And they're uh, set against a, a more seasoned love story, that of um, Hades and Persephone. Um, and as we have established, Hades is the rule of the underworld. And Persephone basically is, um, she's like Mother Nature. She, she brings the, the spring and the summer. And so when you see um, our story unfold, you basically witness um, these two different love stories kind of unfolding, and and Hades and Persephone's story is kind of it's kind of falling apart. Their love story is falling apart. So you see a love that's blossoming at the same time as a love that is sort of decaying, and you witness um, the power of love in, in in different ways, how it can influence us in in both positive ways and negative ways, and uh, the effects that these specific love stories have on the world around us. You know, Hades and Persephone's love story affects um, nature itself. And um, in our story, Hades is basically, is basically kind of like a dictator um, of like an industrialized world. The underworld is, is kind of 
a metaphor for big business and industrialism. Mm-hmm. And Orpheus, his his love story, he's he basically has the power of song, and he he represents like art and romanticism. And so you see this battle between the two, and it really does sort of reflect a lot of what's happening um, on our planet today. So I think a lot of people that are coming to see the show can walk away with a lot of um, amazing themes that that sort of reflect things that they're experiencing in their daily lives. Yeah, I was going to ask you, are, are there kind of some parallels to climate change? Is that kind of like the environmental element that, you know, Persephone comes and brings the spring or takes away the, the good weather? Yeah, exactly. In, in uh, the very beginnings of our show, we have Hermes who uh, acts as our narrator and basically sets the stage that, you know, this is kind of like, don't ask what the time is, don't ask where we are. It's sort of like a timeless, nameless place, but we just know that spring and summer don't last very long, and winter is cold and brutal and seems to be taking over the planet, and the effects uh, of that are because of this relationship between Hades and Persephone. And like I said, because Hades sort of represents industrialism and big business, um, corporate business, uh, you see that because of the choices that he makes, it is directly affecting life on Earth. So uh, tell us a little bit about how you got into acting, Matthew. What, how long have you been performing and what drew you to audition to, uh, for Hadestown? Uh, I've been doing this since I was very young. You know, when I was a little kid, I was, like many of us, you know, just kind of like watching lots of movies and television and I just, I sort of wanted to be a movie star. And so my, my parents, I'm going to date myself here. My parents bought me a camcorder with like, you know, a VHS tape in the side, like the big ones. <laughs> and uh, we used to make little home home movies in the backyard. All my, my neighborhood friends, they just kind of knew that if they were hanging out with me, we were probably going to be filming something. And uh, that just sort of like developed into a life of theater because, you know, that's the closest thing that, you know, a, a kid can get involved in that's that's not you know Hollywood, and so I started doing theater in junior high school, and then when I got into high school, I got really I guess serious about it and and did every you know production that we could possibly be a part of. And when I went into college, I had a choice to make. You know, do I really want to want to study this? And so I studied acting, and um, it just kind of continued on on that pathway towards theater. It was what I had become very comfortable with. Well, and I uh, never... Matthew, we're going to probably have to leave it there, but we're looking forward to no having worries. you. In t- no, thank you so much. Uh, Hadestown starts February 6th at the Moran Theater as part of the FSCJ Artist Series. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And that's our program. Join us again tomorrow when we talk to former program host Al Letson about his recently released podcast about the Dollar General Massacre. I'm Ann Schindler. You've been listening to First Coast Connect on WJCT News 89.9. Support for First Coast Connect is provided by Baptist Health and the North Florida TPO.